If you watch HGTV, Home and Garden Television, you're probably familiar with the show, Fixer Upper. It's hosted by Chip and Joanna Gaines. They're out of Waco, Texas. Um, they're a couple who is fun and people of great faith. They have four children, and what you get to see is what they're always trying to do in their business and, and with their family. It's a, it's a reality TV show, really. What it's all about is they, they fix up houses, and so they get a client, and they'll go find a home that needs to be fixed up. They'll talk about what they're going to do, and then the client doesn't get to see it again until they're completely through at the end, and there's a big reveal. It's a, it's a show that is a reality TV show, but it's a show of great positive values and a feel-good type of television show. Well, the show came out and started in April of 2014, and it has done incredibly well. And so recently they came out with a book entitled The Magnolia Story, which is a story about really their lives before the TV show and then how it's affected their lives after the TV show. Well, it's a fascinating book as you start reading through it and discover this Chip and Joanna. They both went to Baylor. They met there in Waco, and they got married. They had these children every two years, one, two, three, four. And so suddenly there was a packed house with all these kids. Chip, before they got married, was, had a business where he'd buy small houses, and he would then fix them up, and he would sell them. Joanna decided she wanted to be a part of that business. Her degree was in communications. She had no training in design. It was a real stretch, stepping outside the box, but she decided she was going to try. So she started being the person in charge of design, and Chip would build it, and they hit a home run. It started to go great guns. She opened up a shop where she was selling home furnishings, that was very successful. By flipping houses, they soon were able to buy their dream home in Castle Heights, which is one of the nicest neighborhoods in Waco. And so they had this beautiful home, and she designed it. And in the end, there was one of these regional magazines that came and did a photo shoot and a spread on the design of their home. It was beautiful. And so things really were booming in their business, and here she is living in her dream home. She has four wonderful children. She loves her husband. And Joanna said she really felt like a failure. The reason she felt like a failure was she said she never was getting everything done. Everything wasn't perfect. She didn't feel like her design was perfect at her home. She didn't feel like her designs were perfect for her clients. She felt like there was so much that wasn't getting done in her business. And now with four children under eight years old, the house was never perfect. This show house, it was always seeming to be messy, no matter how much she picked it up. And when she really got honest about her life, she had to say she was surviving, but she really wasn't thriving. She was struggling. And then one day she had an epiphany moment, one of those moments that, that changes things. It was in the afternoon she came in and she sat down on her sofa. She had had this beautiful white slipcover made for her sofa. 
And when she sat down, she looked at it, and what she saw were dirty fingerprints all over her sofa. And at that moment, she wanted to run down the hall and scream at her children, as she had done before, telling them, I've told you a thousand times to wash your hands. She started looking around, and what she saw was socks and shoes and a soccer ball and toys there on the coffee table. She'd been picking up all morning long. And she felt like the house was just, again, covered with toys. She wanted to scream at her children, but internally she was screaming at herself, saying, what kind of a mother buys a white slipcover when you have four children under eight years old? She was mad at them. She was mad at herself. She was literally having a meltdown when she heard something. And it was the voice of her children down the hall in a room and they were laughing. Obviously something silly must have happened. And all of her children were in there laughing. And she realized suddenly she had a choice to make. Was she going to go down there and yell at them for not washing their hands again? Or was she just going to let them play? And she realized in that moment that maybe she had been chasing the wrong thing. That she kept trying to make everything perfect rather than finding joy in the moment. I want to read you what she wrote about that moment. It all came down to a mind shift in which I asked myself, What am I going for in life? Was it to achieve somebody else's idea of what a perfect home should look like? Or was it to live fully in the perfection of the home and the family that I have? It got me to thinking about the pressure women and moms are all under these days. It seems as if the standards are so much higher than they were just a few years ago, mainly because of whatever we see on the Internet. It used to require some effort to feel like an inferior mom and wife. A woman would have to go to the newsstand and spend $6 on a magazine to see the current societal standards of what my family and my home were supposed to look like. Now it just shows up on social media, everywhere you look, and it always seems to be picture perfect. That's all anyone seems to post. Perfect pictures of perfect families enjoying perfect moments. I think everyone's expectations of themselves have gotten so much higher. Honestly, as a stay-at-home mom, every time I had a moment to open Facebook or Pinterest, I would walk away thinking, I'm not doing enough. I ask myself the question, am I thriving or just surviving? I always thought that thriving would come when everything was perfect. And what I learned is that it's actually down in the mess that things are good. It was such a blessing to find myself thriving in the middle of pain. Unless you find a way to do that, there's always going to be this fake illusion that once you get there, whatever there is for you, then you'll be happy. I worked hard to try to do it all. To try to live up to that Pinterest perfection that only leaves you discontented. I finally realized that life isn't found on the pages of a magazine. Life is found in the glass of spilled milk and in the long, narrow hallway filled with socks 
and soccer balls. I'm learning that getting our intentions right simplifies our decisions in life and changes our perspective. And in the end, what it's all about is thankfulness and contentment. To be thankful and content, to know joy and peace, it doesn't come when everything's perfect. That's an illusion. It's because of our faith that we can discover it right now. When life is a mess. When it isn't perfect. I believe that you and I can discover a sense of joy and peace and contentment when we make it to the manger in Bethlehem. This morning I want to start a new sermon series for this Advent time entitled Roadmap to Bethlehem. Because I believe that you and I need to make it to Bethlehem so that we can experience a sense of peace and joy and contentment in our lives. For me, Bethlehem is going to be a, a state of the soul, a state of mind. It's where Christ is at the center of your life, where you are surrounded with family and friends that you love, where you're doing the thing that brings you meaning, and where you're offering your gifts to bless life. You can find joy and meaning and contentment when life is imperfect in the midst of a mess. So what we're going to do each week is we're going to try to follow different people who made it to Bethlehem. And we're going to see how they got there. What was the pathway to Bethlehem? And I thought we'd start this morning by looking at the three kings. You know, usually the three kings always show up on the Sunday after Christmas and by then no one's in church. So I thought this year we'd kind of switch it around and let the three kings go first since they had to travel the farthest. The three kings. What do we know about them? Really, not a lot. Scholars have tried to figure it out the best they could. And what they've been able to come up with are things like, well, they came from the east, which is probably the kingdom of Persia, modern-day Iraq, Iran. Or maybe the southeast, maybe it could have been from Arabia. What they believe is that they were religious men, maybe priests, of Zoroasterism. Zoroasterism is one of the oldest religions in the world. It does have a tie back to our Abrahamic faith. We're like cousins. They were people who would have been studying holy scriptures, who believed God would reveal himself to the world. We believe they were astrologers, and so they were studying the heavens and looking at the stars because that's how God would speak. And so it was, as they studied the scriptures and they studied the heavens, they saw a star and they decided to get on their camels and follow it, and it would lead them to Israel, to Jerusalem, and ultimately to Bethlehem, where they would kneel at the manger, and there they would offer their gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Because they made it to the manger in Bethlehem, in the midst of a very imperfect world, they would discover a sense of joy and peace. 
I believe we can too. And I want us to look at how these wise men made it to Bethlehem. Three things. First of all, you need to understand that Christmas is about how God takes the initiative to come. It's not about you and I going and finding God. It is God who has taken the initiative to come into the world. A baby born in Bethlehem. And God put a star in the heavens for people to follow. But not everybody saw it. Because not everybody had prepared their hearts. The wise men were people who were studying. They were learning. They were praying. They were looking into the heavens. And it was because they prepared, they were able to see what God was trying to say to them. To prepare. You know, one of the most significant Christian writers in the 20th century was C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis, you would remember him from Chronicles of Narnia and Shadowlands, the movie about his life, Mere Christianity. He was an amazing Christian writer. But what you may not remember is, for a while, he was an atheist. And what happened was, he was born into a wonderful Christian-loving home, a wonderful mom and dad, and his mom developed cancer. And when he was nine years old, she died. He had prayed so hard that God would heal her, and it didn't happen. His father couldn't handle it. The two boys sent them off to a boarding school and it turned out that the headmaster would later be certifiably insane. Not a good place to grow up. Life was so very hard. And when he saw how hard life was and what a problem it was, he became clear to him that God didn't exist. At 17 years old, he would be writing how God does not exist And he would hold that belief for more than a decade. What was fascinating about C.S. Lewis was during that time, though, when he would go to Oxford, he would continue to read and study and talk to people he admired who had faith. No, he continued to talk and try to learn and grow so that 15 years later he would write, I know there is a God who is incarnate in Christ which would prepare him to be married to Joy. Joy Davidson, who had also developed cancer. And three years after they married, she would die. Only this time, he didn't feel like his faith had deserted him. It was on his faith that he found strength. Because he had been taking the time to study and to learn and to prepare And I got to tell you, one of the things that I find about so many of us as Christians is that when it really comes to faith, we're a little lazy. We sometimes think the way you get ready for Christmas is getting up the tree and getting the presents and going to parties. Nothing wrong with all those things, but that doesn't prepare you to hear God speak. One of the things we're doing today, we're passing out daily devotionals. You can get them online, however, but we have them out here. I I hope you will pick them up, take them home with you. Maybe you like to have a morning time or a lunch time, or maybe you're a nighttime person. You know, I've told you how Marsh and I have a real tradition. 
Every year at Advent, we get up a little extra early, set the alarm. We've made the coffee the night before. We start the fireplace. Our nativity scene is set there on the mantel, the most prominent place in our house. And we sit there and we read the devotionals and have a time of quiet prayer. And I'll be looking this week at this nativity scene. I will look at the wise men and I will focus all week long on how did they get there? What were they thinking? What was their struggle? Are you taking the time to prepare your heart to hear God speak? You don't just get to Christmas Day and hope that Jesus is going to be born. It's about the time of preparing now to study, to pray, to be opening your heart so you can hear God speak. And so secondly, if you are preparing then listen to the nudgings of your heart and go. I really believe God will speak to your heart. Listen to the nudgings of your heart and go. The wise men had been studying the scriptures. They were looking into the heavens and one night they would see the star. Just understand, they didn't get a text message. They didn't get an email. They didn't get a phone call. said, yep, that's it. Go. I know something stirred deep inside them. This is it. This is the moment. Get on your camel and go. I have no idea how God is going to speak to you, but I believe God will if you try to prepare your heart. I have no idea how God might use you to bless a life, to experience love, to have healing in a relationship. I have no idea how God is going to speak to you and what God is going to tell you to do. I just know God will speak if you're willing to follow the nudgings of your heart. I had a great story I came across of a man named Art Bucharest. Art was an art teacher actually up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He worked at LaFont Institute for Learning. It was one of these community colleges where, um, you know, you're always encouraging people to come back in school later in life and keep on learning new ideas and new skills. And what Art taught was origami, the Japanese art of folding paper and making uh, uh, cranes. Of course, the main one, uh, a crane, a white crane, is a Japanese symbol for peace. Well, he taught origami, and the president came to him and said, we're all going to go to the mall here during the Christmas season. We're going to have lots of booths set up of the different things we teach. We'd like you to be there so people can see the skill and the gift of origami. So Arts decided what he would do is he would make 200 of these white cranes and be there so that he could then demonstrate, here's how you fold the paper, you unfold it, you fold it, and he could hand out these origami cranes to those who came. He was working on them at home doing this when it's like he heard a voice say, make a gold one. But they're white. Make a gold one. But they're white. Who would I give it to? You will know. How will I know? You will know. He said, it was the strangest conversation that I felt like I was having with myself. And yet, 
it seemed so strong, he decided to go look for some gold paper. All he could find was gold foil. It was difficult to work with, but he finally was able to fold it and make a gold crane. He threw it into the box right along with the other 200 white ones he had made. And the next day, he headed off to the mall. All morning long, he stood on his feet giving demonstrations. Here's how you fold it and unfold it. Here's how you do this. And then he would give away these white cranes after the demonstrations. He had done it all morning long. It was early in the afternoon. He was doing a demonstration for a crowd, and he noticed a woman standing back off to the side. She didn't ask any questions. She really didn't draw close. She just stood there sort of watching. He said he had folded, unfolded, did his thing. He handed out cranes. The crowd left. And then this woman came up to him, and when he looked into her eyes, he knew. And he reached in the box, and he pulled out and said, I don't know why I'm giving this to you, but my heart seems to be saying, this is for you. You need to know that a crane is a symbol for peace in Japanese. And he said she took this crane and her eyes welled up with tears. She began swallowing. She could not speak. She was trying to fight back the the sobs. It took a while before she could finally speak and she said, My husband passed away three weeks ago. And other than his funeral, I haven't been out of the house until today. Today is our 50th wedding anniversary. And I believe that God is saying to me that my husband is at peace. I want to thank you for listening to your heart. I believe God will speak if you prepare your heart. And I have no idea how you might be used to bless a life or how you might be open to experience love or how you might be reconciled with someone else. But I know that if we work to prepare our hearts, God will speak. Follow the nudgings of your heart. It's how you get to Bethlehem. In the midst of an imperfect world, in the midst of a messy world that can be such a pain, you can still know joy. You can know peace. Third, the wise men came to Bethlehem. They made it to Bethlehem because they wanted to express their gratitude. They believed that God was going to reveal Himself in the world, and they wanted to express gratitude. That's what led them to Bethlehem. The only way you ever get to Bethlehem, the only way you come to know peace and contentment, is ultimately going to be through gratitude in the moment. The imperfect, messy moment. For the wise men, we make a lot out of these gifts. They came all the way to Bethlehem and they offered gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, what we know is they had three gifts, but the Bible doesn't tell us that there really were three wise men. We simply make the assumption there's three wise men because there were three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But the Bible doesn't tell you there's three wise men, just they had those gifts. 
We've understood the gifts. Gold, well, that's the gift you give to a king. Frankincense, you use it in worship. It's the gift that you give to a high priest. Myrrh was what you anointed a body to prepare it for burial. You give that gift to someone who's going to die. So to give gold, frankincense, and myrrh to Jesus is to say, you're the high king, you're the high priest, you're going to die a special death. It's the symbolism we've read into all these gifts and how many wise men there are. What we sometimes forget is it was gratitude that led them to the manger. They were grateful to God. They wanted to express their gratitude, their thanks, that God loved enough to come and to reveal himself into the world. And because they came in gratitude, they experienced great joy. It's when you and I discover that life doesn't have to be perfect for us to be happy. That in an imperfect world, that a world where there is struggle and there is pain, we can know God's grace. And it's in those moments you still can know peace and joy. I was telling you about Joanna Gaines at the beginning of this sermon. Since she's been on television, she's had lots of amazing things happen. Some she wrote in her book. One was about a lady named Kara Tippetts. Kara, it turned out, was 37 years old. And she, too, was a mother of four. She lived in Colorado, but Kara was dying of cancer. She was in the hospital And she wrote her blog, as she had been doing. And in her blog, she wrote, I'm watching a TV show called Fixer Upper. I really like this couple, Chip and Joanna Gaines. They inspire me. She has four children just like I have. I wish I could be at home with my children. That I could be at home this Christmas and I could be decorating my house for Christmas just like she's decorating her house for Christmas. Well, it turned out that one of her friends who was reading her blog was also a friend of Joanna's, and she sent it on to her, and Joanna read this blog. She was in the middle of shooting the television show, a shooting schedule. They were, of course, decorating their house for Christmas. They had several renovations underway, but Joanna went in to Chip and said, I don't know why but I'm feeling like I need to go decorate this woman's house for Christmas. And so she wrote to Kara and said, I'd like to come. And a couple days later, Joanna and two of her friends got on a plane and they flew to Colorado. They went to Kara's home. She was at home now. She wanted to be there at home for her last Christmas with her family and her children She was at home and she was in a lot of pain, but she wasn't tucked off in some corner. No, she wanted to be right there in the middle of it. And Joanna said, I didn't know what I really was there for. I didn't know what I could do for her, but I can tell you what she did for me. She got there and when she got there, Kara got up out of bed. She wasn't supposed to, but she was so grateful. She got up and came over and hugged her neck. And she said it was so easy to see. This lady, she knew such joy. Well, Joanna and her friends started decorating the house for hours the next few days. 
but it always left time each day to be sitting down with Kara and getting to know her story. And what she began to learn from Kara was before she was sick, she already understood. Celebrate each day with your children. It's not about waiting for things to be perfect. It's about doing it now, loving them now. She had been there for her family through all these years, creating an environment where these kids could thrive. And she said she was so grateful. And she still knew such joy. This was not what she wanted. But she still knew joy in that moment. It would be just a couple months after Christmas when Kara would die. But I want to read you what Joanna wrote about it. She said, I found myself wondering what the world would be like if everybody had her mindset. She just reconfirmed for me one million times over that it's up to us to choose contentment and thankfulness now and stop imagining that we have to have everything perfect before we'll be happy. I was struggling at that particular time of my life trying to incorporate the cameras and the long days of filming a TV show around everything else that was going on in our lives. But I left Colorado with an entirely new resolve. I would never forget that all of this is a blessing. I would never forget to be thankful and to find joy. You don't have to wait for life to be perfect to find joy. I believe we all can make it to Bethlehem. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.